So I hadn't had the opportunity to meet you. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. Now, before we get into this message, um, what I want to do is give you a little bit of a warning about what's going to happen at the end of my message. Um, so I'm going to invite a friend um, up front, and he's going to share um, a story of some people in the church this morning. And uh, the story and the true story that they're going to share is probably way too intense for younger ears. I just want to give you this forewarning now. So what you're going to find is when I invite uh, my friend to come up uh, to share, if you have a child in the room that is younger, you're just not going to want to have them in the room for that. I think junior high should be fine, uh, but if you have like a particularly sensitive child especially, um, you can go out into the foyer, and we're going to make sure that all of the speakers are off there. And then what you can always do is go back onto our live stream, because uh, you can find that on Facebook or YouTube or on our website, and then you'll actually be able to hear this. So if for some reason you do have to leave for that part of it, we'll make sure that it is available to you um, in that way as well. But obviously we want to protect young minds and young ears. Um, but this world is a very weird, dark place. And so we as the church, as the people of God, um, we take the offensive, not the offensive, the offensive. And, and Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail. The picture there is of the church moving into the places of darkness, onslaught the evil one, uh, the kingdom of darkness's gates. And so part of that too is sometimes the people of God go into very dark places. And so we're going to highlight some of that at the, end of the, at the end of the service. Now, we're in a four-week series called Together. And in this four weeks, we've explored the major metaphors that the Bible uses to describe God's relationship with the church and especially the local church. So the first week, we saw that the local church is the family of God. Uh, the second and third week, we looked at the local church as the body of Christ and what that means for us. And today we're going to be looking at the church as the bride of Christ. And so our goal is to take the month of January, get everybody at Village Church on the same page, because next year and this year are going to be crazy, and we want to make sure we are unified together as one body, as one family, as the bride of Jesus Christ. Now, um, in my marriage, there has been um, a little debate between duty and generosity. Now, for all the seven-year-olds in your brain, let me spell the word duty for you. D-U-T-Y. Good? I might say the word over 100 times in this message, so if you continue to smirk, that's fine with me. I may as well. But there is this debate in my marriage um, that is between what is expected and what is above and beyond, duty or generosity. Now, um, as we have counseled many, many, many couples, we have found that this is not just a debate that's in my marriage. In fact, we found this is a debate in many marriages. What is expected versus what is above and beyond. Now, I want to share with you um, a sentence that if this sentence has come out of your mouth or your spouse's mouth or somebody that you're in relationship with, you are officially having a conflict between duty and generosity. Here's the, here's the sentence. I just don't feel like you appreciate everything I do for you. Anybody ever feel that way? Raise your hand if you feel that way, you know? Yeah, nudge your spouse. Like, we got one honest, we had like five honest people in the first service, right? We got one guy waving his hand in the back. Look over here, that's me. I just don't feel like you appreciate everything I do for you. Now, the person saying this, let me tell you what they believe about their actions to the other person. They believe they're going above and beyond, and they're moving from duty, D-U-T-Y, to generosity. 
Let me tell you what the person on the receiving end of this is thinking. Uh, they're not thinking that they did anything above and beyond. In fact, they're thinking you're just doing your obligation, your duty, what we agreed to. Now, obviously, you can see there's a little bit of a miscommunication there, but um, I want to share this um, one-liner with you, and I think it's very, very helpful. Generosity begins where duty ends. That true, real generosity begins where duty ends. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, I want you to imagine you're going to your friend's house. They invite you over for dinner. And uh, let me tell you what duty is at dinner. Duty is if you are eating on paper plates, when you're done eating, you go to the trash can and you throw them out. Can I get an amen from anyone who's ever hosted, right? That's a duty. That's just respect. Minimal requirement, right? Some people applaud. That's wonderful. Let me tell you what generosity is. Generosity is going above and beyond and saying, hey, can I help you do the dishes? Now, some hosts will say, absolutely not needed. Let's just go talk, and we'll do the dishes later, and that is appropriate. Sometimes, especially if like, you're really good friends, you'll say, um, hey, let's just do the dishes together. We're going to hang out for a couple hours anyways, and then you talk and hang out as you do dishes. Either way, if somebody helps you do the dishes, when you're done, what do you say to that person? Thank you, because... They went above and beyond duty, and they went to generosity. Now, let me give you another illustration of this. Somebody drops you off at the airport. Duty or generosity? I'm going to go generosity. When you signed the contract to be my good friend, nowhere was like chauffeur in that contract, right? You're like, I haven't signed a contract. I guess we're not friends then, right? Now, let me tell you, above and beyond generosity. Midway Airport. You take me to Midway Airport, you're like way beyond duty, you're like third level generosity, that place is a dark pit and I hate driving over there. <laughs> Anyways. But even in the Old Testament, you have examples of this. So in the Old Testament law, they had what was called tithes. Tithes were actually, under Old Covenant law for the Jewish people, legal obligations. You were not generous if you tithed. You were fulfilling your duty, your obligation. But in the law, God actually had this opportunity for the people of God to act in generosity. And so here's what you had, free will offerings. So after you had met your dutiful obligations under law, then there were opportunities when different needs arose. And then what you would do is that you would go before the Lord and you would pray and you would be generous of your own free will after you had already accomplished your duty. So let's define generosity. Generosity. Generosity is very simply giving beyond duty. I want to share a couple things with you that I've learned about generosity. Number one, generosity is very counterintuitive. Uh, I have yet to meet a child who comes out of the womb and says, here, I've saved so that I could give away. Here's my excess. I would love for you to use this. Oh, that would bring joy to my heart. Anybody have a kid like that? Maybe one of you, and I don't believe you. Liar, I'm kidding. <laughs> I do know Jaden and Chloe, and I have a hunch they'd be close to that. But very few kids naturally, naturally come out of the womb saving so they can be generous. That's not normal. Number two, generosity is transformational. Most of the time when you give something to someone else, you're hoping that the transformation is going to be more about you or them, but in reality, the most, the most transformation happens in the person giving away their excess stuff. It's a profound transformation, and so what happens, and we're going to see this uh, in Scripture, is that as the people of God are generous, the Bible says that we begin to experience, quote, that which is truly life. It doesn't say when you receive generosity, it says when you give it. And so number one, it's, uh, number two, it's really transformational. Number three, it is vulnerable. 
When you give of your stuff to someone else, there's the plausibility of rejection, but there's also the plausibility of entitlement that they're gonna begin to take advantage of you. Like it's actually a pretty vulnerable thing to enter into someone else's need or lack of excess and to actually give into that because you never quite know what's gonna happen. Are they gonna just keep coming back to you over and over and over again, thinking somehow that they deserve it? Lastly is this, generosity, the way you battle this hurt that comes with so much generosity is generosity is for the Lord. And so if you, out of your excess, and I'm not just talking about money, I'm talking about anything. So if you, out of your excess, give something to someone else, in your heart, give it to the Lord, and you are not responsible, nor can you control anything they do with what you have given them out of an act of generosity. But if your heart posture and position is to say, I'm going to be generous to you, God, for them, that is a very different mindset. And so when we're generous, we don't give it with strings or anything attached to it whatsoever. We give it to the Lord, to that person or that organization or that uh, event or whatever it is, and we release it. It's a powerful, transformational thing for anybody who does it. Now let's explore duty. Um, Every culture seems to have a notion of duty, and by definition, duty is simply this. The minimal requirements for functioning well. The minimal requirements for functioning well. I'll give you an example of duty. Your taxes are duty. You are obligated to give those. Now here is generosity. Generosity is when you give freely to somebody's campaign. Now, sometimes that moves from generosity to stupidity, right? Depending on who you're actually giving your money to. Like, if you agree with me, we're great, right? But other than that, it's wrong. No. Um, but very quickly, like, you can be dutiful, and then that goes to generosity once you give above and beyond your duty. Now, Jewish and Roman cultures, particularly in the first century, they had um, expectations, minimal requirements for first century husbands to their wives and to their family, but especially to their wives. And I want to show you these expectations. Here's the first expectation. Um, It would be this, leadership. In fact, there are old codes, family codes, that different cultures have written, and uh, you find really common themes in all of these family codes, particularly of the husband's role and responsibility over the family. And so the first thing that you're going to find in these codes is going to be some semblance of leadership. Now, we're going to agree that Jesus completely subverted and inverted their perverted notions of leadership. But there was an expectation that the man would be the leader of the home in most cultures throughout history. In fact, I want to read to you what one author wrote about this. They said, although it was assumed that husbands should love their wives, ancient household codes never list love as a husband's duty. Such codes told husbands only to make their wives submit. So what we find is that in most of ancient culture, particularly, that leadership did not mean love and sacrifice like Jesus has taught us to, but it meant oppression and the demand to submit to their way, to their will, and to their power. The second thing that you find is not just leadership, but you find provision to the expectation of first century men in Rome and Jewish households was that they would provide the minimal requirements for food and uh, clothing and shelter for their families and for their spouses to thrive and survive. 
And the last thing that they would expect would be protection because generally speaking, the men were stronger, the world um, was very dangerous, and so the men would provide a level of physical protection over the family. The idea of emotional protection or spiritual protection, um, these weren't really categories that most of the men uh, of the first century really thought in. But this, very simply, was their duty. This was their minimal responsibility. These were the minimum things that they had to do to provide so that their community and their home could begin to flourish. But I want to be really clear. Jesus is not just any husband to his bride, the church. And Jesus set a model for us where husbands, you are not supposed to be simply dutiful to your wife. In fact, you are to go above and beyond the duty, the minimal requirements for your home to have some semblance of flourishing. In fact, the analogy is going to go even deeper. The metaphor will go deeper because um, the way that Jesus shows personal and unbelievable, not just duty, but generosity to his bride, the local church, so the people of God have the same affection and passion to the local church. Let me say it this way. Mature followers move, mature Jesus followers move from duty to generosity. Like this is 101. You want to grow up and be a mature follower of Jesus. We get past the minimal requirements and we begin to look at the different aspects and facets of our life and to figure out how we can move from minimal requirements into generosity. So open up your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 30. What's going to happen in Ephesians 5 is you're going to watch the Apostle Paul pretty seamlessly weave two of these metaphors together, the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. And so we're going to watch as Jesus basically subverts all of the Roman and even Jewish um, codes of what husbands are supposed to love their wives like. Watch, watch this in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. All the ladies, can I get an amen in this room? Amen. I mean, that was mediocre, but we'll take it, so good. And gave himself up for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. I absolutely love this next line. He who loves his wife loves himself. If you want to pamper yourself, love your wife, and your life will be a lot happier. For no one, verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Why? Because we are members or body parts, literally, of his body. Jesus excelled way past a duty. Look at just four verbs here. He gave. He gave his life to the point of death, willingly shed his own blood for the purification of his wife. 
He cleansed her, which is a ceremonial washing that would happen um, before a bride was going to be given in marriage, before the actual wedding day. There would be this cleansing where she'd be ritually purified. Uh, All impurities, metaphorically, spiritually, would be taken away from her. It was a sign that she was ready, and then she would be given perfumes and a beautiful dress, and she'd get ready for her wedding day. But this cleansing was a requirement, a, a ritual requirement before a bride could be presented before her husband. But Jesus goes even deeper. It says that he nourished her. Uh, Last week, we talked all about this, how Jesus is just passionate about making sure that the bride of Christ is given every single resource that she could possibly need for thriving and for flourishing. And he has provided for her in so many ways from the word of God to the spirit of God to the people of God. And And Jesus is just overflowing with trying to sustain us and give everything we need, not for minimal requirement functioning, but so that each body part member would thrive. And it doesn't just stop there. What you see is Jesus is personal affection for his bride. He uses the word cherishing, that he actually has this tender affection and love when he thinks about her. He thinks wonderful, positive thoughts. He longs to be with her. When he's around her, he's gentle with her. This idea of cherishing is like every woman's dream come true. I want to be nourished and cherished by the man that I love. And Jesus just models this for his bride, the church. And in all these sermons, there's been this opportunity for self-evaluation and to say, do I cherish the bride of Christ? Like, this is Jesus' heart toward the local church. Do I share his heart? And I get it, there's jadedness and there's pain and there's a whole bunch of things, but I want to just give you a destination. The destination is to get to a point where you learn and begin to love the local church like this. Take away my position as a pastor for a moment. I want to just say on behalf of like my wife and I, like this is our desire, not as pastor and pastor's wife, but as your brother and sister in Christ. Like we want to give our best for the bride of Christ, the local church, because Jesus loves it. Uh, we want to nourish it. We want to, we want to give the word of God and resources to whoever we're around because Jesus does that. I want to have an affection for this church. Like when I think about my church and my people, like I want to have the same affection that I do for my own family. I want to have this love and, and, and attentiveness to, to, this, to this body. I want to begin to try to, in my own personal life, have this kind of posture toward the local church. And I get that it's hard and it takes time, but this is Jesus' heart. And so our challenge is to say, okay, how, how do I begin the process of aligning my heart with Jesus' heart for the local church? It's interesting because in the first century, the bride was supposed to live for the groom. But Jesus says, no, groom, you're supposed to live for the service of the bride. It's all inverted and beautiful and backwards and so generous. Let's go a little bit deeper into this. Um, I want to help you understand Jewish weddings. There's three phases to a Jewish wedding. The first phase is simply arrangement. Um, Unfortunately for most Jews, uh, the husbands and the wives really didn't get a say in who they were going to marry. Much of it was uh, pre-planned by the fathers. In fact, there's a a bit of language in the New Testament around choosing. Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And, And there's a lot of discussion around election and whatnot. And some of this is thought to be understood in the context of, of betrothals and of Uh, The bride and the groom don't get to choose, but it's chosen for them. Interesting insight. Uh, But this would be the arrangement, and then there would actually be the betrothal. This is a legal ceremony where the to-be husband and the to-be wife get, in our words, 
engaged, if you will. But in their culture, engagement was actually a legal entity. So if you needed to break engagement, you needed to get a legal divorce. And so look what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.2. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Here's what he's saying. The apostle Paul was the one who came into Corinth, brought the gospel, and most of those people came to Christ because of his ministry. And this is his way of saying, like, I betrothed you to Jesus. You're not married to him yet, although you're legally bound to him. The marriage hasn't happened yet. And so here's the implications for the church. We are legally the bride of Christ, but we are betrothed, and we have not been fully wed to him yet. That comes at the end when Jesus comes back. Right now, though, what's happening is that we are the bride of Christ being prepared for the wedding day. Look what happens in the book of Ephesians. I want to go back to our main text in verse 26 and 27. It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so this is what Jesus is doing for the church now. You have gone through your ceremonial cleansing in preparation for the wedding that is about to happen at the second coming of Christ. And so here's what we have is that he's washing us. Why? So that on our wedding day, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blameless. You even see in Ephesians 5 that this time that we're in is a betrothal time, a time of cleansing and of purification where we're going to be presented to our groom who is Jesus Christ and we as the church are his bride. And then finally, there's the wedding, there's the feast, there's a celebration. Uh, You go to Revelation chapter 9, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the people of God come together with Jesus, and the consummation of all things happens. It's an incredible text. Read Revelation 19 to 21. It's beautiful and moving and amazing. Now, here's the question you should be asking. So, Pastor Michael, what does all of this have to do with together? What does all of this have to do with 2020, and the challenges and the joys and the excitement that are in front of us. You guys ready? Yes, Pastor Michael, we're ready. I've shared with you every week, 2019 was single-handedly the most transformational year in our 48-year history. Last week, I shared with you multiple reasons why 2020 is already shaping up to be significantly more transformational than 2019 even was. Um, we have, I shared with you a really fun stat. We have 11 pregnant women who are giving birth between February and uh, June. I have to repent of that stat because one baby came a month early this last week. So now we have one baby here and uh, we have 10 that we know of that are going to give birth between February and June. And there are probably some of you right now who are pregnant and you don't even know it. So that's delightful. I think some of you are like, oh no, is it a prophetic word? I don't know. I'm just, (laughs) just saying. In week one, we talked about how we need to be together as a spiritual family as we move into this year, which means having affection and seeing your local church through the lens and the heart of Jesus. Um, The second week, we talked about being together in ministry and service, that for this place to really run and to function and, and for the vision that God has put on our heart and many of your hearts for the future, it requires us jumping in and really owning and being really, really central and important in our ministry and our service here. Last week, we looked at what it means for each of us to be a body part of the body of Christ and that what Jesus does for each body part is he nourishes us 
and we challenge you and try to give you as many resources as we can to get you into the word of God daily, that you might be a flourishing, thriving body part. And as each of us pursue our personal relationship with God, the local church is better off for it. This week, here's my simple prayer and my challenge to all of us. That 2020 would be a year of transformational generosity. And I want you to just for a moment get money out of your brain. This is about your time, your resources, your extra room in your house. It's about your car. It's about your stuff. It's about your toys. It's about your skills. It's about your talents. It's about your neighbors. It's about your coworkers. It's about the people in your life who don't know Jesus and you want them to. It's about you looking at your life and saying, why do I have so much? And what is Jesus asking me to do with all of this excess? Mature followers of Jesus move from duty to generosity. I want, you, I want to show you 1 Timothy 6 because it's one of the best texts on generosity. 1 Timothy chapter 6, God is talking to rich people. Can we just assume for one moment that 99% of you are richer than 90% of the entire world? And so it's safe to say that most of, in this, of, of us in this room can say we're rich. Sound good? Agreed. Here's what he says. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, listen to this, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Why? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What's interesting here is that everything the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy for this church in Ephesus is simply this. Life, the abundant life that Jesus wants for you, like the key that like unlocks it is learning generosity. Let me just make a couple observations. Number one, generosity is not simply financial. He's looking at just the good works. Think about your life. Think about your excess time. How can you use this to love people unbelievably well and meet tangible and real needs? Number two, repeated generosity requires excess. Anybody can be generous with a one-off. Like, you can give everything you have, and that's generous. That's above and beyond duty, don't get me wrong. But it's interesting that for the rich and the spiritually mature, that there is an expectation of repeated generosity which requires intentionality with how we budget, whether it's time, whether it's our stuff, or whether it's our money, that the expectation for the rich, mature follower of Jesus, I'm going to up it to 99% of you in this room, is that we would be able to have excess on a regular basis, and that with that excess, we could be generous and ready to share. Number three, excess that leads to generosity. I'm going to blow your mind right now requires saving. Do you see this? So like the, the way you have excess, which is where generosity is rooted, and I again, apply this to time and money. Apply this to your skills, every part of your life. That the mature follower of Jesus learns the art of margin so that in this margin, whether it's time or money or whatever it is, as needs come up, we can be ready to share because we have more than we need. 
Because we have not spent it all on ourselves, we have actually set something aside so that as the needs come up, after we've met our duty, again, I'm not even talking about tithing. My assumption is we're talking about generosity is that tithing has already happened because generosity doesn't begin until duty ends. What I'm saying is that beyond tithing, which your tithes and offerings make this place function and we can do amazing things and you're unbelievable. But beyond tithing are opportunities to meet real needs in our life all around us, whether the church sponsors it or it's in your neighborhood, I don't care. But for you to be available, to be generous, requires actually a very different perspective and functioning of your life than most Christians are doing. And I think if, if, if Timothy were to come here and he were to talk to you guys after being tutored by Paul, he would say, you guys are, are, you are spending everything on yourselves. The rich are to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. We have a different posture about how much we self-indulge. We think very differently. But he also says, don't get me wrong, that everything in this life is for us to enjoy. He's not talking about a poverty gospel either. But what he is saying is that the mature follower of Christ, especially the ones who are rich, set aside stuff. They have savings so that they can be ready to give. Number four, giving away excess time, talent, and treasure is God's counterintuitive strategy for the abundant life. Your impulse is to hoard everything. And yet, somehow, in Jesus' way, generosity is a key that opens the door of abundant life. It's powerful. Most people want to be generous. They just can't be generous. Now, can we play a little game together? We're going to play a game. And uh, are you a poverty person or a generosity person? Now, here's something that I've learned. Everybody is on one trajectory or another. Um, We're going to use primarily money as an illustration because if you are a poverty person with your money, it is highly probable that you are a poverty person in other parts of your life. So money is one of those means or mechanisms that we can look at, and it's like a a barometer, a thermometer that tells us really what's going on all around you and inside of you. Um, Now, this is not about how much money you have, number one. You can be rich, filthy rich, and have a poverty mindset. You can be broke, 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 and have a generous mindset. Number two, this is not about a poverty go- or a prosperity gospel, which is from the pit of hell, right? Amen? Not talking about that. This is about everyone on one of two trajectories. Poverty people are, number one, driven by impulse, and sometimes a lack of training. Like if you've never been told otherwise, we default to our impulses, which is almost always to indulge our flesh. They are not prepared for life's what ifs. Something comes up and we need somebody to serve in the call center for Rahab's daughter because we're trying to help people get out of traffic situations, women and children. And you're like, I have no margin in my life. Probably if you don't have financial margin, a lot of people don't have financial margin, also don't have time margin as well. Something comes up and everything is drama, trauma because you've been living a poverty mindset. Number three, you see generosity as a threat. So like when the pastor talks about money, let alone generosity, right, your brain is going, and here's what your brain is doing. Um, Here are 13 theological reasons why I don't believe anybody is ever required out of duty to support the local church in any way. I've heard it. Like it it is striking to me that the people of God would somehow try to self 
get there that like somehow Jesus wants the church to function with no funds whatsoever. But there are people who actually believe they don't tithe because they don't believe there's a biblical expectation that the church's needs would be met. And that's fine, but um, I hear this. And when I give generosity or tithing sermons, people get mad. Like I'm not the like twist your arm kind of person. Like my, my philosophy is this. Hey, here's the needs. Here's what God's word says. You go pray about it and you do what you need to do. I don't put a percentage to it. I don't do anything of the sorts. I'm like, you go pray about it. You go before the Lord. Like, that's kind of been our MO. But there are people, when you talk about giving, tithing, needs, like anger wells up inside of them. And that really, at the end of the day, is, is a heart issue that shows us that there is a poverty mindset, not a generous mindset. And finally, number four, they follow the poverty budget, which goes like this. Standard of living, number one. Number two, if... If, they, if there's some room, minimal savings some months, only to be spent on themselves later, or that's usually how it goes. Minimal retirement, usually not at all. Erratic giving, and really no financial generosity. Like this is, unfortunately, too many followers of Christ, how your budgets are set up. And again, if we looked at your money, we could also look at your time. We could also look at your talents. This is just a metaphor, a thermometer, a barometer of all the rest of your life, most likely. There is a better way. There is a different way. I want to share with you the generosity person. When they make decisions, they play the long game. They think about what they're going to need in time, and so they begin to put money away because they understand life is crazy and full of audibles. Like when the alarm goes off in the first service and we all got to leave here. You should have been there. It was great. All the kids were like leaving and I'm like, so do we stay? Because your children are outside. Let's keep preaching. Anyways, <laughs> they are way more prepared for life's what ifs. And don't get me wrong. You can be a generous person and the what if of life can be so big that it can tank you because there's nothing you could have done to even begin to like prepare for something like that. But for the most amount of people who are living in a generous mindset, they think with generosity, they're somewhat prepared for 99% of the what ifs that life is going to bring at them. They love generosity. When I get done preaching on generosity and tithing, they're like, thank you. Generosity changed my life. Oh, I'm so glad you're talking about it. I know it's hard. I just want more people to understand the power of, of giving away excess and what it does to you and your own personal transformation. They love it. They follow a generosity budget. They give first. The people of God have always given their first fruits, which is your first and your best for God, always. That's the standard of the people of God from Israel to the church. They save. Why? Because life happens. They think about their retirement, especially in this context, because one day you're not going to be able to work anymore. They meet their standard of living, but they leave room for this last piece, which is generosity. Generosity begins when duty ends. And they meet their duties, one through four, giving, saving, retirement, standard of living. And after those are met, they have this excess, this space for generosity. I, I want to give you a summary statement of this. And I, for some of you, this is like, ouch. Um, the goal is not condemnation. The goal is to give you vision and to help you take next steps towards whatever that is. But let me say it this way. Anyone with the spirit of Jesus can be rich in good works. Anybody but only the wise can be generous and ready to share. Do you see that? So I know two things in this room. Every one of you wishes they could be generous. 
Maybe there's like one or two of you who are Scrooge McDuck's curmudgeons, right? And I want to be generous. It's all mine. The world's terrible. Okay. You're already miserable. Nothing I can do about that. Most of you want to be generous. And that is a good thing. That is the spirit of God inside of you. The spirit of Jesus Christ himself who embodied generosity. That is a good thing and that is a good impulse. And you may not be able to even be fiscally or or, or generous with your time for some time because it's gonna require a reshifting of priorities and a rethinking of your life, but you'll never get to this until you start and you make a plan. So it doesn't matter what the issue is. I know this, you want to be generous, and here's the second thing I know. Some of you are beating yourselves up for terrible decisions that you have made for habits and patterns that you have led in for years and years. And again, my objective is not to heap condemnation on you. My objective is to cast a vision for something better. Like what if 2020 was the year you stopped living for yourself in poverty and you began to transition in this time, in this place, in this culture, in this year to begin even with just your time and your stuff to find needs around you and to begin to give them away, to take the excess that you do have. Although a lot of people don't have financial excess, I have found it very easy for a lot of people to find time excess. They have unbelievable talents and skills. You might be like 100,000 or 200,000 in debt, but doggone it, you're really good at some things. And there are people in your life who you can just come around and you can bless and you can give of them your excess without asking anything in return. All right, uh, I want to share with you um, a so what. Here's the so what. Make three intentional decisions today that will move you toward generosity. Three intentional decisions. Let me share with you what I think they should be so that we can build from duty to generosity. Number one, start tithing on rhythm. What that means is you move from random acts of duty to scheduled duty. So I think auto bill pay with tithing is one of the best things. I am not going to tell you how much to tithe. I'm not going to tell you what the rhythm is. You've got to go before the Lord on that. Start somewhere. You might have a sense that the Lord is telling you, I want you to give away 20% of your income um, to the local church and to the building of God's kingdom in these different ways. And you're like, I've only got space for 2%. Start with two. Build towards the vision that God puts, you, puts on your heart. God is patient. God does not demand perfection right away, but grows us steadily more and more into the image of Christ. And so actually just learning to be gracious with yourself because God is gracious and the distance between the vision and the now, start somewhere. But rhythm is so important. Number two, start serving on rhythm. Put a serving schedule in place. Like a village, here's kind of our motto, attend one, serve one. Attend one, serve one, and you may not serve one on Sunday mornings, you might serve during the week, but find a place to give of your skills and your gifts to the local body. And then finally, number three is choose generosity wherever you have access. I mean, just take a look at your life and find anywhere where you have more than enough. Here's why I know most of you have actually more than enough money, because you buy yourself Starbucks and fast food all the time, right? You already do have more than enough, and so just take one or two and start swapping out and be generous. Learn to build the muscle, and it takes some time to do it, but start finding areas of excess in your life and relentlessly start giving them away. And apparently that when we start to learn this, we begin to learn that which is truly life. Now, this has been been our practice. Um, We go on my phone um, every day in this series. Are you guys ready to do that? 
I know my homepage stresses some of you out, but that's okay. If you do want to text me right now, everyone will see it, so have at it. Here we go. And if you could do me a favor, don't go on the internet. <laughs> you crashed us the, uh, the other service, 6352, boom. Are we on? Wonderful. Stress, anyone? I know. I need a cleaner picture in my background. That's what I need, something a little less. But my son won second place at a spelling bee. Like, that was ACSI. I was so super proud of him. All right. Um, if you look at the bottom left-hand corner, you see the red app. It says Dwell. That is something that um, I'm going to show you in a minute. But that is free for one year for everybody who is in the room or is a member or regular attendee of Village Church. Um, in fact, I'm going to show you the website to go. It's an incredible listening app um, that will help you get in God's word daily. What I'm going to click is right above that. It's called The Hub. If you go to vcob.org slash forward slash hub, this is a website that is for our regular attendees and members to help you get connected. Everything you need is at the hub. So for example, I'm new. Wow, it's right there. Signups, media, sermon notes, serving, giving. Now we've made this page for all of you together 2020. Now don't puke. I'm going to turn the phone and it's going to shift. Ready? <laughs> Boom. All right. So what happens is some of you have never tithed on a regular basis. We use PushPay, which is wonderful. You click it, and then what happens is you can actually give a one-time gift. You can give to the Benevolent Fund, general offering, et cetera, uh, but you can actually put it on Rhythm. Uh, for me, Rhythm and digitizing it saved my life. It was so, so helpful. Um, there are probably so many questions that you guys have about tithing. So what we have had for the last, I think, five years now is what's called the Village Church Q&A podcast. You can go find it in the iTunes store, but I want to show you this. We have recorded and answered many of your questions on tithing. So we have 14 episodes that we have recorded on tithing, and I'll give you a glimpse of what these are so you can go listen to these. You can go to this link, our hub. You can click on any of these, and it will take you to the Q&A podcast. Um, why should I give my money to my local church? Sometimes I don't have enough money left over each month to give. What should I do? How much money should I give to my local church? I'm struggling with how my local church is spending money. What should I do? I'm in debt. Should I still give to the church even though every dollar I give prolongs my debt? Is it okay to give my time rather than my money? What if I committed to give to my local church but am behind? Is tithing to a non-church or non-Christian organization actually a tithe? Will God bless me financially if I give generously? Does the church only want my money? Credit card debt and tithing, lots of questions we got there. Should I tithe when emergencies come up? Can I tell people what I tithe? Is it okay to stop tithing in my season of healing from church hurt? Um, anybody ever ask any of those questions? Yeah, I've asked all of them. Um, but this is there as a resource to help you go deeper. Um, this sermon is less about tithing than it is about generosity. And uh, we will teach on tithing throughout the year, but um, those are some episodes if you want to go deeper. Some of you, you need to begin to serve and you don't know where to start. And so we have an opportunity, if you hit the serving opportunity. Um, two things, there are a handful of urgent needs. So if you click on this, there are all these urgent needs that we have at the Village Church. And then there's a place to sign up for those. And then you can see all of our ministries. And let's look at Forge. If you click on it, there's Mad Souls. 
you can see some of the immediate needs and ministry and serving needs that they have. Also in the foyer, there's a handout that we made um, two weeks ago that has all the emergency urgent needs as well as the ongoing ministry needs that we have at the church. And so what we want to do is we want to make taking a next step for you as easy as humanly possible because you already have enough things standing between you and serving or you and giving on a regular basis. Um, We don't want to make that any more difficult than we need to. To go back... Can I do it, guys? I don't. I'm going to. Ready? Boom. Um, Here's the urgent serving need. Um, We have uh, already had enough signups for our first foyer expansion day. Uh, If you click on this, we actually have a second foyer um, breakdown rebuild day, and we need some really specific skill sets for that. So you can click on this and uh, check it out. We need five to six laborers. All of that is on here. Construction work, a plumber, an electrician for that day. Um, one of the things that we wanted to offer for each of you is a way to be generous is you can give an ESV study Bible to someone in the church. So if you go on there, it's $25. And if you give that money for every $25 given, we're going to buy an ESV study Bible so that anybody who doesn't have the funds or a brand new Christian uh, comes to faith, we want to give them a study Bible and we want to teach them how to actually use God's word. In fact, I'm very excited because um, starting next week, we're doing a two-week series before we get into Exodus. I'm going to be talking about um, how we got our Bible and why it's trustworthy, and then uh, Earl Seals is going to be preaching on the story of the Bible, so what's going on in this book, and I open it up, and what's God trying to do um, in this book, so very excited about that, but if you go there, you can just click on this, and uh, if you have a need for a Bible, do not be hesitant, just let us know, and we will make sure that we get you an ESV study Bible so you can go deeper in God's word and be encouraged by Jesus through that. And then finally, we have this opportunity. We have a vision dinner. It's March 14th. Um, It's an opportunity. It's free. Um, It's an opportunity to hear our heart of what's happening in the future around some pretty major building expansions that we need to pursue. And then we started saving toward. We're going to be talking about um, our third village church location that we're hoping to launch um, in early 2021. And so there's a lot of things that we're going to be sharing with you. But you can sign up. Even if you just want a free meal, fine, come to it. Um, We have limited spots. So if you want to do that, sign up there. Um, there's a whole lot more to talk about in terms of what's going on here at the church but um, many of you know throughout this um, week and next week we are hosting the call center Vicki shared that um, with all of you this this morning at the opening of the announcements and uh, can you put the picture of of the team that is is going out there, that is already out there. Um, there are 16 people, this is most of them, and this is the team that's on the ground. They are going into um, brothels. Our call center has made over 900 phone calls to brothels all over the Miami and Orlando area. It's a very intense conversation, taking copious documentation in partnership with the de- Department of Justice. And uh, pray for this team, if you would, at the end of the service, we're gonna have a time of prayer together. And uh, But these are the men and women who are on the ground, and they are working really, really hard hard to free women and children. 10,000 women and children are brought um, to the Super Bowl every year from all 50 states. So they are on the front lines uh, of walking into some very dangerous circumstances.